So last week, we started our four-week series on eschatology, which is the study of the end times. It includes things like the return of Christ, the millennium, the Antichrist, judgment, um, thousand-year reign of Christ, rapture, all of those things fit into our discussion of eschatology. And if you remember, there were two primary questions that I posed They're the most important questions regarding eschatology. The first one is, are these events supposed to be interpreted literally or figuratively? Because within Christianity, there are camps that would interpret the end-time events as being symbolic. Some treat them all as symbolic. Some treat them as a mix of symbolic and literal. And then there are others like us that treat them as literal historical events, all of which are still primarily in the future. And so that's the first question we have to ask is, are these events to be interpreted as real events, historical events that are going to take place in the future, or are they just purely symbolic? The second is, are they referring to past, present, or future events? Because even within those who think that a lot of these events are um, literal historical events, there are some who think many of them have already passed. And then there are others, like we propose here, that almost all of these events are still future events, still things to look for, things that will happen in the future. Now, the church has struggled over these two questions for 2,000 years, and not everybody agrees. And the bottom line is it always comes down to how they interpret or how they apply the scriptures. I'm going to refer to myself as a literalist, meaning I, I look at something and I take it as face value. There's another approach that's referred to as allegory or allegorical, which is where you look at the text and, you know, eh, maybe it's literal, maybe it's not literal, but, you know, it's probably allegory, symbolic. In fact, that's a, an interpretation method used by the Catholic Church in many regards. In fact, I came across the ad this morning to learn biblical Hebrew so that you can discover all the hidden messages within Scripture. That's almost an allegorical approach. You just can't take it for face value. There's something deeper, more hidden within it. So we take things from a literal historical perspective here, and that's the way that we approach our eschatology. And if you remember, there were four different views of eschatology that we talked about as it comes to the millennial, because that's where everything sort of camps, is on how they approach the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and the events either that precede it, happen, you know, after it or before it or, you know, somewhere in the middle of it. And so I posed these four different views. And the reason that was important for us is because within Christendom, um, names that you would be familiar with, maybe people you might listen to on the radio or books you might read, that fall into varying categories of this eschatology here. You might find some that are post-millennial, that really believe that that thousand-year reigns is the thousand-year reigns isn't really the reign of Christ; it's the reign of the church. We talked about that when it comes to post-millennialism with something called Reconstructionism, which is that our job as the church now is to Christianize the world, including through politics and legal means, and reinstitute much of the Mosaic Law. And that once we do that, once we bring the world under the dominion of the church and the dominion of Christ in this glorious age of the church, when everything is better and put in place, then Jesus will come back and take his seat on the throne. That's Reconstructionism or Dominion Theology. And so there are some today like Gary DeMar and others that that have popular shows on radio. You might see them on Christian television. You might hear their podcasts and other things that would fit into that post-millennial camp. 
A lot of their language may sound like ours, but until you get in and you look at it, you're like, ah, they're not saying what I think they're saying. So that's why it's important for us to know this. We come from the dispensational premillennial camp, and what that refers to is dispensationalism says that God has worked with different people at different times in history in different ways to accomplish his purpose. And it's kind of this idea of God unfolding his plan through periods of time. And so the reason that that is a um, popular viewpoint is because if you take the scriptures at face value, that appears to be what it is. For instance, Adam and Eve in the garden, what did they know of Christ? All they knew was God said, don't eat of the tree. Right? He walked in the garden with them. Alright? Now, when they fell, he did say that he'd provide a seed to crush the head of the serpent. He already introduced them to salvation. But he didn't say, oh, Jesus Christ is coming, by the way, and he's going to be crucified on a cross. So, then we get to Abraham, maybe, or even, say, the flood, the way that God worked with Moses. Or we get to Abraham. What does it say about Abraham? Abraham believed God and what? His promise of giving him a descendant. And so, salvation has always been by grace through faith, even in the Old Testament. But the object of that faith wasn't always Jesus Christ specifically. What I mean by that is that God saved Abraham because he, Abraham took him at his word, believed God, had faith in God. This, Jesus Christ still paid for his sins, but God didn't require Abraham to know the name Christ when he hadn't revealed it yet. And so God, through these different periods of time, revealed more and more of his plan. And these periods of time were important because, again, God worked with specific people in a specific way at a specific time. And that's important because when we get to the thousand years, that's really the last dispensation, the last period of time where God will work with people here on earth in a specific way through Jesus Christ, literally reigning on his throne at a particular time, in the future for a thousand years. So it fits into this idea of the different dispensations. And so that's the perspective we come from. And what that basically means is a couple of things. That when we look at future events, we take a more literal approach to all of the prophecies. We look at them and we see them as face values. When it says that Jesus Christ is going to come back in literal fleshly form and sit on the throne, reign for a thousand years, we think that means a thousand years. And you have the word thousand show up five or six times in just... Seven or eight verses in the book of Revelation, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand. We take that literally. Jesus is going to reign physically on earth for a thousand years. So we take a more literal um, interpretation to the prophetic text. We're also a little more pessimistic. Some of these, like amillennialism and postmillennialism, think it's going to get better. Everything's going to get better before Jesus comes back. Well, we take a much more pessimistic approach because we believe the scriptures teach that it's going to get worse before Jesus Christ comes back. In fact, he comes back to rescue us. You know, So we take a more pessimistic approach to what's going to happen in the world, but a very optimistic approach of Christ coming back. Right? So we're optimists, but we recognize that this world is going to be getting worse. So we take a very pessimistic approach to what's going to happen to the world before Christ returns. Um, all the end-time events, we believe, are still future. Um, we also maintain a distinction between Israel and the church at this time. What some of these do, amillennialism and postmillennialism, they believe that the church replaces Israel. God is done with Israel. They were just rebellious, and so God is done with them. But then we look at something like Paul's discussion regarding Israel and Romans that says that all Israel will be saved, that we get grafted in, 
So again, when you start thinking about some of these people that will hold a post-millennial, amillennial, or reconstructionist view, which is very much more popular today, um, they talk about us being the spiritual Israel. Israel's not going to fulfill all of his promises that he made to Israel. Why? Because Israel abandoned him. All those promises go to the church now. We're the new spiritual Israel. But that's not what the scriptures teach. We get grafted in. We're the adopted children. And so that's another distinction that we make. Um, And then the last distinction is that he will come back prior to the thousand years, literally experience a thousand year reign here on earth in a physical sense. And so really that's kind of what we talked about last week as we sort of laid this out and why I think this is important for us to understand. So the way that you would manage this is when you're listening to somebody, whether it's your favorite lecturer, your favorite pastor, your favorite radio personality, and you hear them start talking about end times, you might just want to Google them. You know, hey, are they a premillennialist? Are they an amillennialist? Um, See what perspective, because that will help you to understand what they're saying, and you may realize, oh, they're not saying what I think they're saying. So what do we do from there? We talked about Daniel, chapter 2, which we're starting with a big funnel. What does the Bible say about end times. Well, the Lord revealed to Daniel through Nebuchadnezzar, who had this dream, and he dreamt of this giant statue. Remember that? And this giant statue had different parts of his body made up with different types of metal and things. Okay? And each part represented a kingdom that would rule in history from Daniel's day in captivity, and it was describing everything right up to the millennial reign of Christ. And so he mentions the the head of gold represented Babylon, which was basically the world power in Daniel's day. He then talked about the arms of silver. That was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, which followed Babylon. That was a real kingdom that existed here on earth. We had the belly and the thighs of bronze, which was the kingdom of ancient Greece. Greece ruled the earth for a while. Led to the Roman Empire, the legs of iron. And that was, I think, an 800 or 900 year reign. Um, that's basically um, what we see in the New, in the New, New Testament. Okay? After that, and we, learn, we know this from history, most of the prior kingdoms were all conquered, meaning the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon, the ancient Greece conquered the Medes and the Persians. Well, with, with Rome, the Roman Empire just kind of split and fell apart. Just kind of fizzled out. And then divided into much of what we see today, where we have all these different... You know, we wouldn't consider it we're, we're a world power in the United States, but we don't dominate the world, do we? You know, we didn't bring everybody under our control. Okay, we have a heavy influence, obviously. So we've never seen another major world kingdom that will rule the earth. But Daniel talked about this kingdom of the restored Roman Empire, and that was described as the feet of iron and clay, and that is a future kingdom. That still has not happened yet. And then lastly, the crushing rock. This rock comes out of the sky, smashes this statue to bits, and that represents God's kingdom that will ultimately put an end to all of the earthly kingdoms for the most part. There'll still be nations, but we've got Jesus reigning on the throne. A godly kingdom for at least a thousand years and then on into the future. And so that was the picture that Daniel gave to us. And what we know about this is that at least those first four kingdoms literally existed. We can go back in history, we can tell you the dates that they started and the dates that they ended, who they were, who their rulers were, who they reigned, what they were like. 
And because of that, we also believe that the restored Roman Empire will be a literal fulfillment of that as well. And the literal crushing rock, meaning that'll be a new kingdom, God's kingdom that'll come. And so that's the perspective that we took. So we started with this giant funnel where on the top, Daniel tells us, there's going to be these kingdoms. But then Daniel went on, actually, and he gave us a breakdown. He told us the timeline for that. Actually gave us dates, if you will, to tell us where we were going to be. And if you remember the, the, the diagram that I drew for you, um, it begins, um, Daniel describes a total of 70 weeks. And these 70 weeks we know are representative of seven-year periods. And when you do all the math, basically what Daniel said was that there was going to be a total of 490 years for all of the stuff that he described in that statue to play out. But he broke it down into, into smaller periods of time. He mentioned the first 49 years, the first seven weeks, would have to do with the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And he said it'll all start with a decree to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And we know the date when that happened. We know the date when it started, and it lasted approximately 49 years before that temple was finished. Okay? And he said after that period, there would be a total of 62 weeks, or another 434 years, that would take us right up to the point where the Messiah is cut off, which brought us up, when we do the math, to right around A.D. 27. We can look at history, and it was literally fulfilled. And so what we see... Oh, the other thing he mentioned was that um, Jerusalem ultimately would be destroyed by the people of the Antichrist. doesn't mean the Antichrist himself, but people associated with him, which was Rome. And so he says that that would happen sometime after this extra 434 years. And that's exactly what happened. Rome was destroyed in AD, or I mean, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Jesus Christ was crucified. He was cut off. Okay. And so, everything that Daniel said for those first 69 weeks was literally fulfilled. But the problem is that all of a sudden, after that 69th week, nothing happened. His 70th week, the last seven years that he described, didn't happen. Now, because everything else up until that point was fulfilled literally, what should we expect with that last seven years? If Daniel told us that all of the weeks, the 69 weeks leading up to that last week, were literally fulfilled, real historic events, what should we expect of the last one? Exactly. So we still expect that there will be a seven-year period in the future, Daniel's 70th week, that will be fulfilled yet. And that took us to the slide that you have on the screen now. It's kind of broken down. We got into Daniel 9 and Daniel 12. And the way that Daniel describes this is that the Antichrist right up here will sign a peace treaty essentially with Israel. But three and a half years into that peace treaty, he's going to violate that peace treaty, stop them from having their sacrifices in the temple. He's then going to set himself up as God. Paul mentions this as well when he's talking to the Thessalonians. It's referred to as the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist goes in, stops all the sacrifices, puts himself on the throne, declares himself to be God in Israel, in their temple. From that point on, what Daniel describes next is at some point in the other half, 
He mentions a lot of celestial disturbances, things in the heavens that take place. He mentions judgment and rescue of of Israel as well. We see that at the end of that period. But then he also mentions an extra 30 days and an extra 45 days, and we'll get into that probably next week or the week after. Okay? But that's Daniel's 70th week. That's all something in the future. So today what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at Jesus' Olivet Discourse, because what Jesus does is he gives us now more details on that 70th week. And then we're also going to get into the book of Revelation today. We're going to give you a high-level view, which also describes Daniel's 70th week. So we start with a big funnel of Daniel's picture of, here's the next 500 years practically, to some degree, with a break of who knows how many years. Right now we're going on 2,000. But then we're going to finish it up with this. And so now Jesus is going to talk to us about the end times. If you remember Matthew chapter 24, there's three places where the Olivet Discourse is discussed. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13, and then Luke chapter 21. We're going to spend our time in Matthew chapter 24 today. If you remember the story, Jesus is coming out of the temple... The disciples are looking at that temple, and Jesus basically tells them, you know, not a stone is going to be left here. It's going to be torn down. And so the disciples ask him a very simple question. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Very specific question. What do we look for, Jesus? How will we know when you're coming back and what the end of the age will be? And notice they tie those two together. They know the end of the age, the end of earthly things, This existence that we live in now will come to an end, and it relates to Jesus' return. So Jesus is now going to describe to them what to look for and how things are going to play out. And again, what he's describing is Daniel's 70th week, this last seven-year period. So let's go ahead and look at that. Matthew chapter 24, we'll start in... Verse, uh, just, we'll start in verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and he was going away when his disciples came up to the point, or came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. The first thing Jesus is going to do here is he's going to talk about what he calls the birth pangs. Look at um, verses 1 through 14, or I'm sorry, chapter uh, verse 4 to 14 here. And Jesus answered, and he said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name. They'll say, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. They will then deliver you over to tribulation, and they will kill you. And you will be hated by all the nations because of my name. And at that, or at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because... Lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. So Jesus starts out here by talking about these birth pangs. You know what birth pangs are? Especially women that have been pregnant and given birth. It's not the birth itself, is it? 
It's just stuff that comes before the birth. Now, some would look at this and say these birth pangs are everything that's happening currently because it sounds like us. There's wars and rumors of war, etc. But Jesus is talking about a very specific period for these birth pangs. And again, we'll see this as we go through this, maybe as we get into next week and following. He's not referring to now. He's not referring to what we see today necessarily. There will be a period where these things will specifically start to take place at a much greater magnitude and degree than what we see today. So Jesus says that these things will lead up to his return. He's telling them what signs they should look for. And you notice these signs include things like apostasy, betrayal, false prophets, lawlessness, people's love growing cold. He says all of these things are signs, things to see, things to look for. He says, now, when you see these things, they're birth pangs. It's not the end yet. They're just the beginnings. They're leading up to. They're the signs leading up to his return and the end of the age. He goes on next to describe what Daniel described, the abomination of desolation. Look at verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the, uh, let the uh, reader understand. We're going to stop there for a second. So what Jesus actually has just described, if you look at this graphic here, notice the false Christ, the wars and the rumors of wars, the famine, the earthquakes. All of those things, he says, are birth pangs. And what we're going to see as we lay this out, those are all things happening in the beginning of the tribulation. Okay? What we refer to today as the seven-year tribulation. I don't think we should be calling it that, and I'll explain why in a moment here, but Daniel's 70th week better way to refer to it. So, and the reason we know that Jesus is talking about these things happening, these birth pangs happening in the first half of Daniel's 70th week is because Jesus says what? The next thing that will happen, he says, is the abomination of, Dan- of desolation that Daniel talked about. When did Daniel say that takes place? He says it's in the middle of his 70th week. So what Jesus basically is describing is, War, antichrist, false prophets, disease, famine, earthquakes, natural disasters, all happening just prior to the antichrist stopping the sacrifices in Jerusalem and setting himself up as God. So Jesus tells his disciples, when you see this happen, when you see that abomination of desolation happen, what's next? Well, he's now going to describe what's referred to. He calls it Great Tribulation. Look at verses um, 16 through 28. Then those who are in Judea must flee the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down and get things out of the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight might not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, there is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophet will arise and will show great signs and wonders so the, as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. 
Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner room, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So what does Jesus describe next? He says, immediately following the abomination of desolation, things take a turn. He says there will be great tribulation. He describes some of the things you see on the screen of my graphics there. Basically, there's no time in history yet, Jesus says, that has occurred that will look like this time. In fact, he says it is so bad that nobody would survive if the Lord doesn't intervene and cut those days short, put an end to them. I think that the reference Jesus here makes, you notice that there he talks about the death and and other things. Um, One of the things he mentions here is he tells them, in essence, run for the wilderness. Run. Because a lot of it's focused on Judea. A lot of it's focused on Israel. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 12 with me real quick. Revelation chapter 12, which describes things that are happening during Daniel's 70th week, but specifically during the Great Tribulation portion of this week. We'll just start at verse 1 of chapter 12. A great sign appeared in the heaven. A woman, that represents Israel, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head of crown of twelve stars. And she was with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in the heavens, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. That's the Antichrist and the reign of Rome. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them into the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. It's a reference to Christ. And she gave birth to a son. Now this is descriptions of what has already happened. The birth of Christ has already happened. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Has that happened? Yes. But then look at this. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there... She would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the servant of God, or servant of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. What basically is being described here, there's a number of references, but one of them, notice the reference to the number of days there. The number of days that he lists there, 1,260 days. That's the second half of this great tribulation. So what does Daniel or what does um, John describe here in, in chapter 12? He basically says that after this abomination of desolation, and this intense persecution starts. And we believe that that's probably the persecution of the Antichrist against God's people. That what happens is Israel is able to flee, or people in Israel have been told to flee to the wilderness where God has prepared a place to help protect them. So, in other words, faithful Jews can flee to the wilderness where God has prepared a place to protect them from what? This great tribulation, this 
persecution by the Antichrist, and we'll see that when we get into some more details of the book of Revelation. And it happens during the 1260 days, which is three and a half years. And so that's what is being described. And so Jesus even references that. That when you see the abomination happen, flee for the wilderness. Get out of Judea. Head to the hills where God has prepared a place to protect you. Those faithful Jews that go will be protected. Those that don't won't be and face the persecution of the Antichrist. And so that's what Jesus has described so far. So, what does he do next? Well, look at verse... uh, See, we're in chapter 24, go to verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, notice he's already referred to that, after that tribulation period, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven or from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So what Jesus describes now is the sign of him appearing in the heavens. And there's actually um, three things that take place there. But you notice he says that this happens immediately after that great tribulation. Now what's interesting about this is that, again, he mentions three things that will happen. One is these celestial signs. Did you catch that? He says, after those days... The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Throughout the scripture, these celestial signs actually mark the beginning of something very specific, the wrath of God. It's referred to as the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2, I'll just read this to you, Joel chapter 2, verse 31 and 32. Joel is describing the beginning of the day of the Lord, this period where God pours out intense wrath upon the earth. It's a very it's a very short period of time. It happens very rapidly. It does not last very long because God's wrath does not need to take a long time. And so the sign of that starting, when that will begin, Joel says, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors who call on the Lord. Notice he describes these celestial signs taking place with the sun, the moon, the stars, the sky. Turn to Isaiah chapter 13, if you will. Isaiah chapter 13, because he describes the same thing. Chapter 13, we're going to start at verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. He's referring to there the day of the Lord, the the time of intense wrath when God will judge the earth. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Now look at this. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the whole world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. He's describing there the day of the Lord. And he warns people, this will begin, the day of the Lord's wrath will start with these celestial signs. 
with the sun, the moon, the stars. And so Jesus, if you go back to Matthew chapter 24, says that immediately at the end, this great tribulation period will end with this sign, this celestial sign in the heaven. That will signal the return of Christ. That's when it will start, but more importantly, it signals the beginning of the wrath of God. The second thing that Jesus says will take place is that he himself will appear visibly in the sky. Go back to Matthew 24, verse 30. Then, what? After the celestial signs, after the great tribulation, after the abomination of desolation, Jesus says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So he says, when you see these signs, the next thing you'll see is the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, coming with power and glory. Now, what you notice about that is it's not going to be secret. It says here that they'll all see it. The tribes of the earth are going to mourn. What's interesting, and we'll get into this next week, or next week or the week after, in Revelation chapter 6, between the sixth and the seventh sign, we see these celestial signs take place. And John records what the kings of the earth will be saying. And they begin to cry out their mourning and their weeping, and they're essentially... They even say, protect us from the wrath of God. And so John describes that as well. The last thing that Jesus says is verse 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from the end of the sky to the other. And so three things take place, Jesus says, after this tribulation happens. You'll see these celestial signs that will appear in the sky announcing the day of God's wrath that's about to be poured out on the earth. Next, you'll see him appear in the sky. And then lastly, you'll see him basically take away all of the elect. The angels will come, sweep them away, and remove the elect. I believe that's a reference to all believers at that time. It's a way to interpret the word elect there. Now, some people see in here a reference to the second coming of Christ, and others interpret this as being the rapture. I'm somebody who believes this is the rapture, and we'll get into that as we spend in the next two weeks, and there's some reasons for that. I won't get into it here, but again, some good scholars believe this is the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he returns to earth to take up his reign for a thousand years. Um, I've got reasons for interpreting it as the rapture, actually, um, which that immediately is going to probably send off some red flags in your head thinking, oh, wait a minute, if that's not happening until there, I thought we were pre-trib, I thought Jesus was coming back before all this happens. That's what we're going to try to answer in the next few weeks because the picture that I've laid out for here, the question ultimately that um, scholars struggle with is, is what Jesus is describing, these birth pangs, is that God's wrath yet? Or is that the wrath and persecution of the Antichrist? That's the question. And not everybody agrees on it. Okay, But as we get into this, what Jesus is describing at a minimum is these things are going to happen before the end comes and before he comes back. This is a picture of what Daniel laid out, and now we see Jesus repeating it, but with a little bit more detail. And he's warning his disciples about this. They asked, what do we look for? And this is what he told them to look for. He even told them, get ready to flee. 
Now, some are going to argue that, well, he's only talking about the generation that exists in the future that will be here on earth when these things happen. That's one possible interpretation. Another possible interpretation is that Jesus didn't know the day or the hour yet because he hadn't resurrected or he hasn't gone up to be with the Father yet. And so he laid out this picture and warned his disciples, hey, it could happen. You might be here. I don't know. We'll get into all that and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit as we kind of look at the different views of the rapture. But this is what Jesus laid out. Now, what happens in the rest of this so far in the Olivet Discourse is Jesus then takes a little bit of a break here. We'll call it a parenthesis. And he basically lays out some parables in verse 32 all the way through chapter 24 into chapter 25. And he goes all the way through verse 30 with parables teaching them to be ready to be prepared And that's where you get the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents and all that. So he spends the next chapter here describing how to be prepared. What what should we do? And then he goes to the second coming or his return in verses 31 through 46. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, verse 31... He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The rest of this describes the judgment of the sheep and the goats where he separates the good from the bad, the righteous from the unrighteous, the saved from the unsaved. And that ultimately we know as we look at the scriptures then leads up to And it's right before the thousand-year reign of Christ. So what Jesus has just done for his disciples is he's laid out Daniel's 70th week. These are the things that will happen before I return. This is what's going to happen when I return. And that ultimately takes us right up to the doorway of the thousand-year reign of Christ. Does that make sense? It's kind of the picture that he lays out for us. And I kind of do that, you know, pictorially. Meaning, if you look at the end of that great tribulation... You've got the cloud in the sky, that's the you know, celestial signs, and you have the picture of Jesus. Well, that's Jesus saying, I'm going to be in the sky, that's my sign in the sky. You have him rescue his saints, which is below the head there. And then at some point you have the actual return of Christ, where he comes down to earth, has the judgment of the sheep and the goats, and from that point on then ultimately goes into the thousand-year reign, and then ultimately into eternity. So that's Jesus' picture of Daniel's 70th week. Yes? Nick. Well, I didn't really place the rapture there myself. No, but I'm saying um, because Jesus, I, you know, Jesus, it all depends on how you interpret Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 through 31. Is that the second coming or is that the rapture? Some people would say that's the second coming of Christ and he only, he talks about it and then he returns to it in verse 31 when he says, When the Son of Man comes, others say no, he's referring to the rapture because he doesn't say he's returning to earth here. He's saying his sign appears in the sky and he gathers the elect. And they would see that as the rapture. If that's the case, and we'll get into this a little bit more in the next two weeks, that would happen right there. Okay? Now, what's that? Didn't sign up for that. Right. And that's that's what we would refer to, that's what we would refer to as the pre-wrath rapture, which is the... It's where I found myself kind of camping the more I look at it. Um, It might also explain why the early church, if you look at the early church writings, they seem to not separate the rapture from the second coming. They saw them, I mean, they 
their writings indicate they thought that the church would be here and suffer through the reign of the Antichrist. How do we explain that? That's the first 300 years of the church. Um, we don't know. They seem to incorporate the rapture and the second coming kind of together. Now, we don't know if they believe they happened simultaneously or if they believe there was a period of time because they didn't really write much about the rapture itself. They just simply talked about the second coming. And I know that probably freaks people out. But you'll see as we get into the book of Revelation and then specifically the last week, I'm going to spend a lot of time, the whole last week, we're going to talk just about the rapture. And we're going to look at um, the pre-wrath view because most of you are familiar with the pre-trib. Jesus comes back before all this starts. All of this is God's judgment. The problem I have with this all being God's judgment is because we have a lot of stuff that happens in this period here where they're eating and they're drinking and they're having a good time, Jesus says. If God's pouring out his wrath at that time, that seems a little bit unusual that they're celebrating and having a good time. And then also, when God pours his wrath out, and you'll see this as we go through it, it is rapid, it is fast, and to be real honest, nobody can really survive. And people say, well, that God protects the church. That's not what's described in the book of Revelation. It's, it's a very brief, very short period of time. Um, and we'll get into that. So don't get ahead of yourselves too much. Don't worry or freak out about it. Um, like I said, it's, um, I've always kind of camped somewhere between that pre-trib and a pre-wrath, and I find myself moving more towards the pre-wrath view, which I think is just a face value view. But I'll present it, and I'm not dogmatic about it. All I know is Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to rapture the church. We're not going to face his wrath. Whether this is all his wrath or not is left up for debate. But we will not face his wrath. He will rescue us. So we'll get there. So let's go ahead now and look at the book of Revelation. Okay? We're going to do a very high-level view of the book of Revelation very rapidly. Um, and then we're going to come back in the next two weeks and be more specific about that, okay? So we're going to do a very fast overview of the book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible. So, I'm going to give you an outline of the book. First thing we see is what was referred to as the prologue, and we'll get into this in a minute. First eight verses of the book are what's called the prologue. It's the introduction to the book, okay? Then... You have what's called the letter to the seven churches. If you look at chapter 1, starting in verse 9, you'll see that Jesus is is revealing to John a discussion with the seven churches in Revelation. These are churches in Asia. And so that's really what those first few chapters there are, the first three chapters or so, deal with these letters to these seven churches. It includes warnings to them about being faithful. They get chastised for their sinful behavior, and a couple of them get rewarded for some good behavior. But those are the letters to the seven churches of Asia. Then we get into chapter 4, the first 11 verses. And that's, uh, basically we just refer to it as a vision of God's throne in heaven. It's where John sees the vision of God on the throne. Okay. Then you get to chapter 5. And what ends up happening is Daniel's 70th week begins. And so John is given a picture into the 70th week of Daniel with much more detail than anywhere else in the scriptures. That's pretty much the majority of the book is describing the events of that 70th week. Let's go ahead and look at it. The beginning of the 70th week 
is the, what's called the seven seals. That's chapter 6 through or up into the very first verse of chapter 8. So let's read some of that. The first seal, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw the Lamb who broke one of the seals, that's Jesus, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out and conquered, and was conquering. Now you'll notice, maybe in your Bibles it might refer to that individual on that horse as the false Christ. Well, that's the first seal here, underneath the section seven seals. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24? There will be people claiming to be him. There will be false Christ. That happens here with the first seal. The second seal then is verses 3 and 4. Then he broke the second seal. I heard a second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. And that men would slay one another with great sword was given to him. That's violence, something Jesus also describes. That's the second seal. Then there's this third seal. And when he broke the third seal, I came, or I heard... A third living creature saying, Come! I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard something like a voice in the center of the four creatures, living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. You'll notice that might be described as famine. Remember what Jesus said? There would be wars and rumors of wars. And then he said there would be famine. Well, so far... Those three things were that were described by Jesus, John is taught here in the first three seals. Jesus referred to them as the birth pangs, all happening at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. You can see how Jesus and Daniel are lining up pretty well here. There's something like 30 um, things that, that happen in the Olivet Discourse, in the um, description here in the book of Revelation, that all line up. Pretty interesting to see how it all fits together. And so, that's the third seal. Go to the fourth seal in verse 7. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth, now we've got death and destruction happening as well. Something Jesus describes. That's the fourth seal. And there's a fifth seal. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony with which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So this fifth seal refers to martyrdom of the saints. Some who are already dead, who are appearing in heaven, but he goes, to, goes on to say that they will not be avenged yet until more of them have been put to death. What did Jesus describe would happen? You'll be put to death, he says. You'll be martyred. John describes it here taking place in the fifth seal. Now, what you may notice here is I kind of broke this down to try to give you a visual. But Jesus talked about, like, see if I can get up here. Jesus talked about the birth pangs up there. And then after the birth pangs, you'd have this great tribulation. Well, Jesus said this right here, the abomination of desolation in the middle 
of that seven-year period is what would trigger the Great Tribulation. I believe that's what triggers these four seals. Because the first three seals were describing the birth pangs. And part of that is because Jesus says that it's really, when does that persecution get ramped up? He says it's after the abomination. That's when the Great Tribulation starts. A period of time like never seen in history. Well, if you've got a world leader sitting on a throne in Jerusalem who's claimed he's God and many people believe that he's God and he's now martyring and killing all those who disagree with him, that will be a time unlike any other time in history. We have never seen that in world history. Going to the sixth seal, verse 12, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made out of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by the great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and every island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the, com- um, and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day and the wrath, or of the wrath, has come. Who is able to stand? Does that sound like anything we read in the Olivet Discourse? What did Jesus say would take place? Celestial signs in the heaven, which is what John describes taking place here. Talks about the sun, moon, and stars, right? And then he says, the sign of Christ appearing in the heavens, right? Well, you look at this, and you have the um, sky splitting apart. You've got these kings of the earth and everyone looking up, they recognize the presence of him. Who are they referring to there? Verse 16 says that they're looking up and they're seeing the presence of God, Jesus Christ himself, who said, I will appear in the sky with power and glory. These men are looking up at that and then what do they say next? They want the mountains to fall on them and crush them so they don't have to face God's wrath. What we have here is the beginning of the day of God's wrath. And according to what we saw in Jesus, that will come about at the end of the Great Tribulation. That's when those signs appear. And so we're now in the sixth out of seven seals. It would make sense that we're now approaching the end of that Great Tribulation period. And so we have this sixth seal take place, which is the celestial signs, the sign of Christ in the heavens, and men recognizing that the wrath of God is about to be poured out on the earth. Nowhere up until this point have they mentioned the wrath of God yet. In fact, Jesus tells us that they've been celebrating, eating and marrying and partying along. All of a sudden, though, they recognize God's wrath is now about ready to begin. So then, essentially, what happens? We have this seventh seal that is cracked open by the Lamb. That's 8-1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Now, between these seals, there's this interlude that takes place into heaven where it talks about the sealing of the 144,000 Jews. God will take and put his seal on the forehead of 12,000 Jews from every tribe. They will be here on earth. Some say that their job is a witness. I don't believe that's the case. Instead, they are simply God's protection of Israel. They may be, the 144,000 may be those that ultimately flee to the wilderness. It's unclear in the scriptures. But they are sealed and protected by God. But then it also mentions up in verse 9 
this multitude of believers that have been rescued out of the tribulation that are given white robes. Some will see that as a reference to raptured saints. Some see it as something else. We'll get into that a little bit. So between the sixth and seventh seal is a pretty big deal. That's when the celestial signs happen. That's the preparation for God's wrath being poured out. And then you all of a sudden with this seventh seal, you notice it says that there's silence. All of a sudden there's 30 minutes of silence. It's like God puts the brakes on some things. Why might God do that? Why might he go quiet for 30 minutes? Why might everything sort of end and pause for a moment? I'll just reference two things. I'll give you the references here. You can read them on your own. But Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20 and Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 7. What's interesting as you look at those, it is describing the day of the Lord and the beginning of the day of the Lord, but it begins with silence. Ed DeZago once said, it's interesting when you look at God's pattern. Often before he pours out his anger, he goes silent. And that appears to be the case here. That because what we're going to see next now is God pouring out his wrath on this earth in a brutal, vicious, rapid way. And it starts with 30 minutes of just quiet. And that was warned about in the Old Testament by Habakkuk and Zephaniah. And it appears to be God's pattern. Why? Not really sure. But he's calm. God is collected. Waits 30 minutes. And then it begins. And so what happens then in the book of Revelation is from chapter 8 all the way through chapter 11, verse 19, we have the day of the Lord, the pouring out of God's wrath upon the earth. And it starts with the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. Let's just read some of this. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. And I saw the seven angels stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God and out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of light and then earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there was hail and fire mixed with blood and there was thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood and a third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and night in the same way. Then I looked and behold and or I heard an angel, or I'm sorry, an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet and the angels who are about to sound. So in other words, if it's not bad enough through the first four trumpets, 
It's getting worse. We now have the beginning of what's called the three woes, which are part of the last few trumpets here. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went out from the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them, and the scorpions of the earth have power. Now this may be symbolic language here. We don't know if these are real scorpions, or if this is probably the most prominent interpretation of this is demonic entities that have been released from the pit, those that have been confined. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, not any green thing or any any, uh, tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, and they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. I don't have a position on that. It may very well be legitimate insects and scorpions, but it could also be demonic entities. And in those days, men will seek death and they won't find it. They will, be, they will long to die and death flees from them. This is quite the contrary to when Jesus said, they'll be partying it up before these things happen. Having marriage and giving their kids away in marriage. No, these men now are begging to die because of the torment being poured out upon them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle and their heads appeared to be crowns like gold and their faces were like faces of men. He goes on and describes the rest of this in great detail. Tormenting the earth for five months. Then there's the sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. One saying to the six angels who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour of the day, the month, and the year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I'm of the opinion that this is probably a demonic army. Not going to be dogmatic about that. I heard the number of them and this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them, the riders of the breast. I'll let you finish that. But a third of mankind being wiped out. Remember Jesus saying that if God didn't put an end to this time, nobody would survive? We're a third of the way there. So what you basically have is this discussion of these six trumpets being blown, which is God pouring out his wrath on the earth. It includes these what are called woes, which are the worst of this so far. You get these... Six trumpets sounding and a third of mankind is wiped out in a heartbeat. The seventh trumpet then is sounded in chapter 11, down in verse 15. You've got the two witnesses in the meantime there we're told about. They were, one of the things that becomes really clear is that God continues with angels in heaven declaring the gospel to men on earth and also the two witnesses declaring the gospel. God still is preaching the gospel at this time. Makes you wonder where the church is. I think they've been raptured by this point, clearly. Even if you're pre-trib, you believe that the church has been raptured. We are not here at this moment. Which is why the angels and the witnesses are preaching the gospel. But we have this last trumpet sounded in 11, chapter 15, or verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This ends, in some respects, the kingdom of man, and institutes now the kingdom of God in its final form, if you will. 
So we have the seventh trumpet sounding here, an announcement that God is done with the kingdom of men and finally ushering in the the beginning of the eternal kingdom, if you will, the thousand-year reign of Christ, all those things that involve God's kingdom begins here. You've got the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Now, what happens next is you get a few chapters in here, chapters 12, 13, and 14. Between the seven trumpets and the seven bulls, we have this parentheses. And what I mean by that is, he describes events that happened throughout Daniel's 70th week, but not necessarily chronologically. So chapters 12, 13, and 14 don't necessarily happen between the seven trumpets and the seven bulls. It's like he takes a pause to describe a series of things that happen, and he includes things in there um, that ultimately just relate to what's happening through the period we just discussed. So it's a parenthesis. Okay? It's a little bump out. It's a pause. You could kind of take that and lift that right out, and it would take us right to the bulls. Okay? And chronologically, that's what happens, meaning the seven trumpets and the seven bulls just boom, 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 boom. There is no pause. Okay? But John kind of gives the impression there might be because of this 12, 13, and 14 chapters. But again, it's a parenthesis. Um, it's a non-sequential series of visions that reflect events that mostly, mostly unfold at various times. It includes things like Israel escaping to the wilderness, Michael the archangel raising, rising up and fighting on behalf of Israel. It's about the reign of the prophet and the beast. We get discussions of those two individuals, the Antichrist gives us a vision of Jesus standing on the mountain with his 144,000 Jews. Talks about the angels from heaven preaching the gospel. And so all those things are described in verses 12 through 14, and they happen at various times throughout this period we've just discussed. Okay? Then we get to the conclusion of God's wrath, which are the bold judgments. That's chapter 15 through chapter 16. I'm going to have you just read that on your own for the sake of time this morning. But we have those bold judgments being read or being described in chapter 16 through chapter 17, verse 21. That is the most intense time of God's wrath. So in other words, it intensifies and grows in intensity from the first trumpet to the last bowl. And the reason I think there might be a, a difference, why seven trumpets and seven bowls? You remember Daniel's extra 30 days and extra 45 days? Well, here's what's interesting. When you put the pieces into place, the day of the Lord, God pouring out his wrath, actually begins at the end, like before it ends, of the seven-year period. So in other words, those seven trumpets are still occurring in Daniel's 70th week. Okay? So God's wrath starts in Daniel's 70th week, but extends for an extra 30 days after that week ends. And so the seven trumpets take us right up to the end of Daniel's 70th week, and then the seven bowls are those 30 days that Daniel describes in his um, in chapters what, chapter 9 and 12. And so what we kind of have here is, in this picture we have the three and a half years, the three and a half years, that's his total seven year of the tribulation period, if you want to call it that. And then you get these extra 30 days, which is the finishing of God's wrath. And that's what I meant before by when God pours out his wrath, it is rapid, aggressive, fierce. He doesn't delay. And so the seven bowls only take 30 days. 
seven trumpets, I'm going to guess, probably take about the same. And so God, when he does pour out his wrath, according to what we see in the book of Revelation here, it's very fast and very short. God doesn't need much time. In fact, we even see this when Jesus is here on earth for a thousand years. At the end, when he releases Satan, come out of the abyss again, and it says all the kings of the earth came up to to battle him. How long do you think that battle lasts? (laughs) It's like he snaps his finger and they're vaporized. He doesn't have some long, projected battle. He doesn't need to. He's divine. And in the same way, God, as he pours out his wrath on the earth, it is very short, very fast, and it is fierce. It's partly another reason why I'm not so sure that the whole seven-year period is the wrath of God, because it's unusual for God in that nature, plus what's described here. But we'll get into that in a little more detail. Two more things, and then we'll wrap this up. We have another parenthesis, then, that happens at chapter 17. So after John describes these seven bowls, we have this parenthesis again from chapter 17, 18, 19, and 20, up to 20, verse 3, that describe the events that take place again throughout the seven bowls. It includes Christ's victory, and destruction over Babylon. It describes his second coming. It describes his casting the beast and false prophet into the lake of fire. And it even describes the binding of Satan in the abyss during the millennial kingdom. It also describes the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we're in heaven for that, which means that the marriage supper of the Lamb, if you want to know where that takes place, it takes place somewhere either within the seven trumpets or the seven bulls. Probably near the beginning. I think it happens somewhere um, at the beginning, meaning you know, it will happen shortly after the, the rapture, and if we are pulled out before the wrath, that would make sense. So that's what's described in chapters 12 through 17, or I'm sorry, chapter 17 through 20, or the beginning of 20. Another parenthesis, just not necessarily sequential. They don't happen after the seven bowls, probably during the seven bowls that John Spends time describing those. And then the last few things, chapter 20 deals with the thousand-year reign of Christ, a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ here on earth. Then we have the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 21. And then we have what's called the epilogue at the very end, chapter 21. So that's kind of a very broad view of the book of Revelation. It's, it's big, but it lays out like what you've seen right here. Okay? And as you notice... As we've kind of gone through this, as we started with Daniel's 70th week, Daniel was very vague about, I mean, what we knew about him was, well, it's going to last seven years. It's going to start with the signing of a treaty. In the middle of it, it's going to be broken by Israel or by the Antichrist. And then somewhere after that, there's going to be some nasty stuff. And then Michael the Archangel is going to come and he's going to protect Israel. And, you know, and then finally the end is going to come. And then he says, and, you know, pray that you might be one of those people that, you know, not only make it through the 30 days, but really pray that you make it through the 45 days. And what he means by that is that's that time of restoration. And so, of course, for Israel, yeah, you want to be one of the guys here when Israel's restored and all the promises are fulfilled to Israel. So Daniel gives a very broad overview. Well, then Jesus comes in and gives us some more details, talks about the birth pangs, the great tribulation, the sign of him appearing in the heaven, all of those things, gives us more details. And then the book of Revelation now gives us the full color picture. There is no additional information. Nobody else spells out any greater detail than what John does, these events. And even with that, we still don't have all the pieces. 
For instance, we're going to talk about the rapture the next two weeks now, because that's what everybody wants to know. Um, I've already spilled the beans to some respect where I'm, where I believe we are in that. But we don't have all the pieces yet. God progressively over time reveals the pieces for us. And I would suspect that once this starts, we're going to see some things if we're here. We're going to see some new things. God's going to reveal additionally more. We'll know what his plan and purposes are. Um, but this is about as clear as it is so far from a scriptural perspective. Okay. So again, why is it so important for us to know these things? Well, Jesus told his disciples that they should be prepared. That's the reason. We should know these things so we're not caught off guard. We should know these things so that just as Jesus does in Matthew 24, he spends just as much time telling them to be ready as he did explaining the details. That's what all the parables were. So all of this should tell us Jesus Christ is coming back. This is what we should expect. And we need to be prepared. Not because, you know, we have to face the the wrath of the bulls, but because we should be prepared for when he comes. Period. Ready to receive him when he comes. But, just as Jesus told his disciples that there would be signs, we can look for those signs as well. And when we see those signs, we know that he's coming. Amen?